HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, our weekly food news roundup. Fall is finally here, so it's time to get funky and devote an episode to some of our favorite spunky microbes. Fungi just provide this beautiful, whimsical lens on how the world works. They have so many roles. They're this strange and magical-seeming group of organisms, but they've got it all figured out. Should you eat the cheese rind? Can you eat the rind? These are like the biggest questions. We'll answer all of your questions about mysterious mushrooms and crazy curds. Plus, we'll give you a sneak listen to the newest season of Modernist Breadcrumbs. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And I guess that means... I'm history. Don't you always think of history as meaning something old? Well, history in my book is yesterday, right? And I have something to ask those of you listening out there. How many of you remember the Galloping Gourmet? Graham Kerr was one of the early TV personalities. And even before he appeared on television in the late 60s and early 70s, He had written a very modern and revolutionary cookbook. Uh, It was published in the United States in 1969. But it was overshadowed. The, The seriousness and importance of this book, I think, was overshadowed by his huge success as one of the early TV cooking personalities. Matt and Ted Lee have resurrected that book and added Kerr's own handwritten commentary. I am happy to say that both Matt Lee and Graham Kerr join me today to revisit the newly published book and the talk about the early stardom of TV food. Matt, I want to start with you. Now, Matt, you are a, a food writer, um, mostly of the South, but not, I mean, not really, but you've started this new um, imprint with Rizzoli Books. Can you tell me first a little bit about that and what, what it is you, you and your brother do? 
yes, thanks, Linda. Uh, the Lee Brothers Classic Library came about because an editor at Rizzoli recognized that Ted and I owned just too many books, too, too many cookbooks <laughs> and food you. books, and uh, had opinions about them. So uh, he asked, would we be interested in selecting for the ones that we uh, thought were diamonds in the rough, um, or any kind of uh, food or cookbook that we thought could thrive in a new era with a new audience? Um, because uh, he offered us this opportunity to republish and redesign if necessary, and um, uh, we jumped at the chance, of course. <laughs> right, right. Uh, um, but uh, so we kicked off with uh, Princess Pamela's Soul Food Cookbook, mm-hmm. which was also published in 1969, coincidentally. But um, that, in that case, it was because the original was published. It was malpractice. It was a crumbly little paperback for a huge, important manuscript. Um, just a landmark uh, Southern cookbook um, about the foods of upstate South Carolina from an African-American perspective uh, before World War II. And there aren't a lot of them. Well, uh, certainly was print. not, yeah, certainly was not the case with Graham Kerr's book. That's right. And so each reissue product, uh, project takes on its own personality. And um, uh, Princess Pamela was lost and, and probably has died. We, we don't know for sure. Um, that was an enduring mystery about that project. But in the case of the Graham Care cookbook, we were thrilled to be working with the actual author himself. Well, what in, um, what, in particular, and, what in particular made you choose this book? Now, remember, Graham's listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've talked about him in front of him so many times now, I'm quite comfortable with the situation. But He'll get his turn. But the thing about the Graham Care Cookbook is that it was introduced to me at a pizza parlor in North Charleston, South Carolina. And as soon as I saw the cover, I was riveted. Um, this book, you have to understand, is five decades ahead of its time um, in design, in the way the recipes are laid out and presented, um, conceptualized. It truly is a modern cookbook. And I challenge you to identify another cookbook that has both um, metric U.S. and imperial measurements for every single ingredient in the entire cookbook. And step-by-step photos as well. And step-by-step photos way way ahead of its time. Graham can talk about why that happened. But you can just feel it. This cookbook was created with a fully scientific, um, objective, and passionate approach that is very familiar to people today. Yeah, I, I actually, I have to admit, I had not, I was not familiar with the cookbook until um, you, this reissue. And I was, I was stunned at the layout, the way, now those of you who are familiar with cookbooks of, of the last two decades, are, this is something you will not have seen before in the way, well, there are a couple, um, usually cooking school cookbooks, the way the recipes are laid out, very clear, very concise, very, and, and very different than our usual cook and stir cookbooks. It's, it's quite interesting. It's, um, more like modernist bread or something like right, that. I mean, right. it just has this beautifully crisp, rectilinear, um, uncluttered way about it that just so refreshing. All right. 
Well, now we are going to turn to the source of all this. <laughs> and um, I am just thrilled that, Graham Kerr, you are, are available to speak with us. Graham is living in Washington, the state of Washington. And those of you who mm, remember him, I'm going to refresh your memory, those of you who aren't familiar with him, you can find, I'm sure, reruns on YouTube or whatever, all of his different shows. But the Galloping Gourmet in particular, he... <laughs> Far before the the famous you know TV icons, and he became an icon for sure. He would enter the stage with a glass of wine in hand and leap over a chair and run into the audience and grab one of the audience members. Just I'm that immediately broke all those boundaries and put the audience at ease, put the viewer at ease, and said, "Oh, this guy is enjoying food and having fun." Now. The problem is, maybe they took the fun more seriously than they took the food, but just watch him cook, and you'll know that the seriousness is there. Graham, it is a pleasure to be able to speak with you. I'm calling it meeting you. And I, and what I didn't say is that, well, we'll talk about your background, but you, you were a serious cook long before you became a TV star and a cookbook author. Welcome. Well... Thank you. And I love to be here because I live in a county, Skagit County, very much like Montgomery County in Maryland. Hmm. And we're doing about the same thing that you're doing back in Montgomery. I'm, I listened to your podcast and was delighted to see this happening somewhere else. Well, that's, that's great because I know you're, you're very much about gardening and, and farming and fresh yep. vegetables. And we will get into that. But I want to take a trip. I want to take a trip back through Memories Lane, and my memory is still yep. pretty sharp, and I'm sure yours is too. Uh, when and your wife Trina was your producer um, for all those series, yep. and uh, and it's just the it, the shows were always so tight, and it was really really very well done. Um, do you did you feel at that time that your food and cooking were taken as seriously as you intended it? No, as a matter of fact, we had a constant tension between the two of us on this one. Um, I wanted so much to be able to teach how a dish could be made in, and not leave out any of the instructions or any of the ingredients. I mentioned every ingredient by exact weight on that Galloping Gourmet series. I did every stage of the method that I thought was necessary for people to be able to see. But Trina had said to me, you are the most boring man <laughs> in the entire <laughs> world. Um, Great. As she said, unutterably boring man. Um, I took that very seriously. And um, I, so I said to her, well, if you're so clever, what would you do with the program? And she actually took off in New Zealand in the very early days, spoke to the broadcasting people there, told them that my husband has a sense of humor and he's not using it and you are ruining his desire for communication. And, um, and they said, okay, Mrs. Kia, why don't you do the show? <laughs> well, um, well, your personality. So I have to tell you that my wife Trina said to me, if you really, really want 
to teach anybody anything in television, you must understand that it is actually an entertainment informational program in that precise order. That's right. So therefore, give me the first six minutes, and then you can do whatever you like with the audience, which is by that time having fun. Right. That's right. <laughs> so hence the, the leaping over the chair as you <laughs> entered the stage, right? <laughs> um, totally. I mean, I said at the time, what is Julia going to say about this? <laughs> and of course, I was right. Um, every serious food person was appalled by this behavior. And, um, uh, and I understood that. But I made a deal with Trina. And and I guess she was right. Huh. Well, <laughs> I, your personality did shine through. In fact, one journalist uh, called you the Liberace of the food world. <laughs> I mean, you were bigger than oh, life. Yeah. You were, I mean, you were bigger than life, larger than life, as they say. Um, and I remember watching, and you're going to have to correct me if I'm remembering wrong, or maybe it was someone else cooking at that time. But I was, I was floored by the fun antics and, and just smiled through the whole beginning and thought this was fantastic and charmed by your accent and your cheeky use of little phrases, as you would say. And, but then, oh yeah, but then I, but then I went on to watch what you were cooking and I was at the time where I sort of wanted to expand my repertoire as well. And I remember you cooking a saddle of rabbit loin, perhaps, with mustard sauce, yeah. was that? And I said, "Whoa, this guy, this guy's serious, and he knows what he's doing." You know. So I searched through the book, and it's not there. But <laughs> so it was in another book, no doubt. Yeah. Um, but it. But Matt, you, you, I know, and you noticed very well that um, that <clears throat> Graham touched a lot of people. That he really beyond his humor and his, he was really able to to get through to them with cooking. Um, how, how did this book, I don't know, does it demonstrate something different as far as how we cook today and how that we were cooking then? Uh, that's a great question, because um, I'm always focused on all the ways in which it connects with what we're doing today. Uh, nose to tail, you know, love of meat, also, uh, you know, vegetable worship, um, an awareness of thriftiness with um, kitchen resources and ingredients and not throwing away things. And I mean, he was ahead of the, the curve on all that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, you definitely feel the presence of the 1960s and um, stylistically a little bit in the um, electric coil stovetop, you know, ranges and the Catherine Holmes, the Pyrex and stuff like that. Um, it's really kind of fun, uh, Mad Men era flair. Um, but, um, <laughs> That's a new and one. And I'm always asking um, Graham, because uh, <laughs> from that superstar era are out there. There's a beautiful bench scraper that has his signature on it that you can find on eBay. And, and that's the symbol right there. You know, he was so ahead of his time, like bringing the tools of the pastry chef or the professional chef into the home kitchen. Right. I mean, they're um, very, very classic dishes as well. And one, 
I think somebody, when you were trying to sell the idea to Rizzoli, someone, you know, they realized, they recognized that he was decades ahead of, of his time. Um, and they wrote, but while at the same time reflecting its own James Bondian era, what, what, what do you think they meant? What, what was that in reference to? I mean, that's the reference to the fact that the guy is fabulous and handsome. <laughs> I mean, and... There you go. And it emanates from, you know, the British Empire. Um, his biography, which I encourage you to explore, is um, fascinating and, um, and too lengthy to, to explore in detail here. But suffice it to say that, uh, you know, the guy has served Winston Churchill and uh, brushed elbows with the Queen and um, done some fabulous things. Well, that's where, and that's exactly where I wanted to go next with you, Graham. That, that talking about your background, as as I mentioned before, a, a very serious cook who was cooking long before you landed on television. Tell us a little bit, bit about that. I mean, you were born in New Zealand, correct? Actually, no, oh. but um, but in in, no. in a wonderful way, yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I love that nation. Um, I'm a I'm a Scot who was born inadvertently in London. Um, my mother couldn't get back across the border in time. Um, my parents are hoteliers. I was raised in the hotel business. I'm an only child. I didn't um, have local friends because we lived in the middle of a forest in a very well-known and very highly prized small hotel. And um, I, I, I was put in the kitchen by my dad uh, at about 11, 12 years of age. And uh, that's where I observed people cooking. And they were my friends. And um, in a sense, I was the kitchen mascot. Um, so it's it sort of food and um, the reemergence of classic French cuisine right, yeah. um, being presented to the local hierarchy of British society was where I emerged. And by the way, J. Paul Getty's home was just around the corner from our hotel. Huh. So i give you some idea of the location. Right. But then you, but then you ended up serving uh, the, in the Royal New Zealand Air Force and you lived in Australia. I mean, you're, you bounced all around. Yeah, I actually went from um, the British Army to um, the general manager of the Royal Ascot Hotel in England, and then to New Zealand. And they were the people who put me on television, thinking it was something might be good for PR, for the Air Force. <laughs> huh. Well, you know, that's the, uh, it is, to me, it was very notable um, in the recipes, because the recipes and your now in this new edition, your handwritten notes explain a lot of the words in the title, a lot of the ingredients. And just by way of, of reading and following a recipe, we learn something about the foodways and the culture of New Zealand uh, or of Australia. And you explain them all very clearly. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I'm thinking particularly of, um, Oh, a potato I couldn't begin to pronounce. Nagaru who, something like that. <laughs> um, uh, but there are all these different, uh, different um, 
items of you know produce and cooking. I mean, the meats are all the same, but it was really interesting to me. I, I learned felt that I learned something you know about the culture, and and yet the cooking was the same, you know, in very much the same ways. It is a very meat centric book still. I mean, given the style of the time, Linda. Correct. It was, uh, which works very nicely with those people who want meat meat only. That's right, yeah. Um, I must say that at the time, when I arrived in New Zealand, uh, more than Australia, um, there were no what I would call regional dishes, and which was amazing to me. You know, I grew up with Saulnier's Repertoire de la Cuisine, um, he was an associate with Escoffier, and that's where I learned. That was my first learning curve with food at food school. And um, I wanted to see um, areas of New Zealand become famous for the ingredients that came out of the soil at the same time uh, in that area. So that it was, a, for every good reason, it was regional. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wanted to see uh, the, the same thing that had been done for Europe could be done for, for New Zealand. Well. And I still want to do that for the United States. And we have so few named local dishes. You know, Boston clam chowder is an obvious example. And several great dishes from the South, as Matt has so beautifully recorded. But otherwise, we are, we've distanced ourselves from what grows naturally out of the soil in season. And that needs to be put together with better creative effect. Well, I, I certainly encourage you to, to, uh, to keep at that task because we are, we are losing our regionality, definitely. I mean, we travel from coast to coast and see the same restaurants and the same strip mall fast food yeah. joints. And we really need to to focus on that regionality. And yes, Matt, you and, and, and Ted do a wonderful job on uh, reminding us of the, the Southern specialties. There are a few more important questions that I want to get to, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. You fall for that you can never just Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Matt Lee and Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet, and... 
that's something I wanted to get to right away, and that is the where did the name Galloping Gourmet come from? People believe that it's just you jumping over that chair, but actually it has a history, right? It really does. Um, Qantas Airlines initiated their round-the-world service by giving two first-class seats to myself and Len Evans, who was a famous wine writer and later on famous winemaker in, in uh, Australia. <clears throat> their only requirement was that we would keep the receipts for as many restaurants as we could, uh, <laughs> as we could visit and, um, and hand them over at the end, and they would pay for all of our meals. So we, I think we, from memory now, it was 31 days that we, uh, we stopped off at different places. And we wrote a book about it. Um, Len wanted to call it the Galloping Gluttons because it, it literally <laughs> was that. It was awful experience. Um, funny way. Um, nice job if you can get it. We <laughs> both had a sense of humor. So we wrote a book and we called it, the, he, I prevailed with the word galloping. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, gosh, this could make an amazing television series. And that's where the, the name came from. And that's where basically the idea came from. That mm. global sweep of some of the finest restaurants in the world, the most creative chefs in the world. How could we capture that um, and enjoy that at the same time? Well, and, and when you did the, um, the television series, series, <laughs> you continued to travel. <laughs> I mean, you did continue to travel so that you had a little you know, background, a piece uh, that you would do uh, verifying the place that you came from and a little bit about the ingredients, correct? Yes, and you need to know the background behind this one, because I did, when I lived in New Zealand, that is a suspiciously long way away from anywhere else That's in the true. planet. And, um, and so I was doing a radio program initially, and it was called Cook's Tour. Awful title. Um, and I was asked to give reminiscences of the places that I had visited. And within about a dozen episodes, I'd run out of places that I'd visited. <laughs> and I, I found this wonderful cookbook called the Esquire International Cookbook that went into great detail about different fabulous restaurants around the world. So um, I talked to the producer and she said, just never say that you went there, but just give, what, give the background of, of these places and that'll do. Huh, interesting. You know, I always felt sad about that because uh. people would say to me, I heard about your visit the other day to New York, and it was wonderful. And, and I'd have to say, I never visited. Well, yes, you did. I heard your program. <laughs> so it was clear that I was giving an impression which wasn't true. Yeah, yeah. And that upset me. So uh. when it came to my chance to do an international program, I went to visit all the places that I had said that I had at one stage, but hadn't. Wow. So everything that I did on that program was true. Oh. Well, Matt, you... And oh, well, that's that, important. That yeah. is, yeah. And Matt, you um, had mentioned that, that he truly was a, a, f a front runner in the, the whole 
food and travel uh, well, yes, genre. I mean, think about, um, you know, Andrew Zimmern or, or Anthony Bourdain mm-hmm. and that um, idea that, that, you know, to really experience a culture, you have to go there. All right. Absolutely. We haven't emphasized, I don't think, enough that, you know, in the 1960s, the context for food was really French-dominated. Yes. And sort of stultifyingly dull. And um, whether it was James Beard or Julia Child or Michael Field or whomever, like, they were all talking kind of the same language. And so the idea of experiencing, uh, you know, an international perspective on food and bringing it home to your home kitchen was kind of revolutionary. Yeah. Um, it's, it's true. And, uh, um, th- no, that I lost that train of thought, but yes, you're right. <laughs> it's, and that well, and so think about the show, <laughs> the show itself began with maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Graham, but like about a five minute introduction where you see Graham in, you know, the Alps and uh, experiencing something firsthand. And then you come back to the studio, which, by the way, was in Ottawa, Canada, um, where he has a live audience, also revolutionary, and proceeds to cook through some dishes that play off of his experience in the Alps. Um, And then the way he does it is so wonderfully loose and authentic and relatable. I mean, it just makes cooking at home feel accessible and fun and you know he empowers the people to to do it and so that that also was revolutionary in that era where the typical show had a more didactic more like you know i am the expert you are the student kind of um attitude right and, and there were and, nowadays, and there weren't too many the of more. them and there weren't too many of those shows i mean there was julia well that's right you know, and mean, the you know, superstar a- factor is largely due to the fact that there were only, you know, four channels on your television. And uh, Graham was <laughs> distributed in North America, Australia, Singapore, the U.K., Canada. Huge. And so he had 10 million viewers. Yeah. Well, you, Matt, had the privilege of cooking with him. That's where I had wanted to go in, um, yes. <laughs> on, in working with this book. And did you do that primarily to make sure the recipes were still workable in today's... Uh, Well, we had cooked enough from the book um, to recognize that it was totally appropriate for today's cooks. Um, And he developed these recipes with a team at the New Zealand Air Force. Um, So they were super thorough. Um, They're very well rendered. Like, we had no qualms about uh, publishing these recipes. I just wanted to cook with the Galloping Gourmet. I mean, that's a once-in-a-lifetime <laughs> yeah. experience. I hear you. <laughs> that was a pretext, you know, <laughs> testing the recipes. It was just a pretext to spend time with Graham. He's, as you know, um, charming and fun, and, uh, yeah, it, it was a privilege. To yeah, well, Graham, after, kitchen. after talking to you yesterday on the phone, Graham, it was just a brief conversation, just setting up the, you know, the parameters for today's interview. I said, oh, I'm going to have to do jumping jacks before I start this interview to keep up with you. <laughs> so <laughs> there's no slowing down over there for sure. <laughs> um, no. You know, um, they're just, uh, I'm sorry, I'm That's sorry, right. I'm interrupting. No, no, please. It's your show. I'm, they, are, uh, they a, a group of people, have decided that they should make a film of my life. <laughs> 
um, a kind of biography, but really a feature-length movie. And uh, so they're going to call that Galloping Upstream. Oh, and that's <laughs> I what you well, and that's how you signed off on uh, on your intro or something. You said keep uh, what is this upstreaming all the way? Yeah. Yes, I you know I wrote a book about salmon, um, about Chinook salmon, the mm-hmm. Canadian king salmon, and. This is an endangered species as we speak. Um, they're, they're moving their habitat because of the water temperature. And um, they're a wonderful fish, an extraordinary fish to eat and to cook. I wanted to get to know them like a male and a female um, and, and have a relationship between the two of them as they came downstream out into the ocean of opportunity, and then upstream on purpose that their species would survive. Mm-hmm. And it, it occurred to me that's something like some of us who are not just living in the flow of the moment or in the opportunity that presents itself, but we have got this idea that if we live a little differently and a little more responsibly and respectfully, for each other, we may, in fact, as a human race, um, continue. Well, that's that's. Uh, and if we don't, helpful. we will simply extinguish life. Indeed. Um, are there um, some myths or misunderstandings that you would like to dispel? I know wine and drinking was one of them on on set. <laughs> Um, well, you so wonderfully um, and so easily announced the fact that we're going to have a little commercial break. Um, <laughs> I couldn't do that because the program was shown in various countries where there were no commercial breaks. So um, we had to come up with something that would break the, the, the movement. So I picked up a glass of wine and said, time for a short slip, and then took a sip. When the glass went down on the counter, there was a cutaway to the glass cutting down, and that was the break. Oh, that was the break. Brilliant. That was brilliant, yeah. Uh, it, I couldn't drink and do three shows back-to-back with remembering every single ingredient right. and all of the plus-minus things. I could end that show plus or minus 15 seconds. And so I didn't have... Um, much leeway. Trina said, I'm going to give you four minutes uh, in which you can lead yourself astray. Um, But apart from that, everything has to do with the detailed um, uh, rehearsal, which was done every afternoon. So I'd rehearse three dishes in the afternoon and record three dishes with a live audience um, at the night. Wow. And the you audience can't drink and do that. Absolutely not. And your audiences loved every minute of it. I have to tell you. I mean, it was just you could see it on their faces. I love them too. And you yes. always had them. You had the audience members taste the food afterwards as well, right? Now, please understand this one. This is very important for me. The moment that I began to organize an episode, say Stroganov, um, I would have to go to Moscow. To do that. Um, so uh, the, the work of 
arranging things with the government in Moscow, etc. Um, and not, not including travel time, but local time of researching the dish, etc. Bringing it home, um, making the ingredients suitable for worldwide distribution and understanding. And, you know, this, these programs were also played in, in China um, and, uh, and uh, you know, translated into French, etc. Um, so I had to be very careful about the kind of ingredients and the methodology and the way in which I discuss these things. So all of that was then done rehearsal-wise at home in my test kitchen. Then I went to the studio's rehearsal program. So 19 and a half hours into that one episode was that moment when I ran into the audience, grabbed some poor unsuspecting person, dragged them out, put them in the hot seat, and got them to eat the food on, on camera. Now, the reason I did that is because I needed to know from the day one that someone that I didn't know was going to go on camera and taste that, and I wanted to please and delight them hmm. as an individual. Mm -hmm. And they were all secretly hoping that they would be chosen <laughs> as the royal taster, I'm sure. <laughs> well, so many people have told me how they long to have that as, a, as an idea. <laughs> right. Um, you, um, Matt, mentioned that, that as much as, and we were talking about, um, uh, well, Graham, you said that Trina had told you, that, you know, the rules of television, that you're an entertainer, and then, you know, you, uh, you give them information. But, Matt, you kind of flipped it around. You said that he was more of an educator, not just an entertainer, but an educator, and that's how he touched so many people. Um, and you found this from reading his books or from watching his old films? Uh, both. I mean, certainly the books reflect a desire to get people into the kitchen, into their home kitchens. But uh, the shows themselves, I mean, you can see him struggling against the um, charming imperative um, because he does care about every single ingredient. Uh -huh. And um, what I love is that the charm actually makes the um, effectiveness of what he was doing in getting people into the kitchen possible. It's, yes. it's absolutely, yeah. you know, and Graham, you, um, Trina had given you some advice on staying fresh and staying, um, let's say interesting <laughs> and not boring <laughs> when, in, in trying to, um, help you stay spontaneous and you quoted her and she was talking about not destroying the spontaneity and don't, don't re don't go back and redo it. If you watch yourself, you will become an edited person. And don't do that. Yes. So talk a little more about that and how you really took that as, a, as your Bible. Well, two things played into that. One is when you've got an audience of about 300 people and they're having to sit through three episodes, that's really tough to keep 300 people over a two-and-a-half-hour period <laughs> in a studio right. um, relatively entertained. Um, so I was concerned for them uh, right there in the studio. Secondly, we never, ever, well, that's not true. On two occasions, we had a serious problem, and we had to stop 
the, uh, the, the tape, but only on two out of over 500 episodes did we ever do an edit. Everything you saw that I messed up, I messed up. Um, then there was her statement is, I don't want you ever to watch a program back. Ah. If you do that, you will watch yourself doing things you like, and you will naturally, as a human being, want to do them again. If you see yourself doing things you really don't like, and you swear that you'll never do that again. And in the end, as you said, you will become an edited person. And she said, if you ever want to see an edited person, just watch the evening news on television. Right. <laughs> and, and you've got mm -hmm. a perfect example of someone who watches very carefully what they do and tool themselves up to be the best um, modified individual for the audience. Uh, well, I would be remiss if I ended this uh, show and not make some mention about your new style of cooking and your and your interest and consideration for health in food and cooking. I know we've gone, you know, the book is made up with of wonderful dishes, but maybe perhaps special time dishes and 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 some everyday dishes. Tell me a little bit about your new philosophy. Well, what I um my wife Trina comes from a family with poor genes. Um, you know, they, they have all died or had very serious heart problems and early in life. Mm -hmm. Trina had a stroke and a heart attack at 52. Um, now, if you love somebody, you do the best you can to do them good. And so what I did is I simply went into all my methods, which I still feel are exactly correct. And I changed the ingredients, the, the loading of certain foods. For example, uh, with meat, you'll find that I, I'm an eight ounce per serving person in this book. Hmm. Um, I will now tell you that every one of those methods works perfectly with four ounces per person. And therefore, it, um, it, it takes up less plate space. So how do you fill the space? <laughs> you fill it with food that is plant food, or plant food, if you like. And, um, and you add the ingredients to it that you prefer. And that's if you hate broccoli, there's no point in me telling you to put it on your plate. So find the plant foods you love and fill the space with plant food. Well, that is so um, much... It's less risk, yeah. Yeah, it's so much today's, I think, today's philosophy, or at least one that that um, many health advocates and chefs are ascribing to, and that's, like, let's don't make meat the center of the plate. Let's move it off to the side of the plate. And that is, uh, it is so, yeah. it's a healthful way of, of eating and thinking about food. And I just can't wait to see what's next that comes out from you. And Matt, <laughs> and Matt... Mm -hmm. For you, I, I'm, um, I'm excited that for this book. I'm so glad you brought it out because I don't think, I don't think I, it would have crossed my shelf. Uh, sorry, Graham, but I don't think it would have crossed my shelf otherwise. And it is absolutely wonderful. Um, and I thank you for starting this, this Vintage Classics series. And I 
look forward to see what's next on that one, too. So both of you... I'm looking forward to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you do have something new that I saw posted, um, but uh, will we mention that or not mention that, Matt? Um, hot, uh, sure, why not? Yeah, hot... What is it, hot? Our next book is not a cookbook, but um, uh, four years in the making, a deep dive on how catering works. And that is so interesting. I, I, that's, that's one right up there on the top as well. Well, a lot of stories. Good luck in all your work. And Graham, both, both you thank and you. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and, and explain this. I wish we had hours and hours to talk because, Graham, I'm sure there are a lot of stories there that you could tell. <laughs> <laughs> there are. <laughs> yeah. But I thank you so much, and I encourage people to, uh, to take a look at this book that's old, but yet it's very new. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.